Father, we come to you and we ask that you might break through our jadedness and fatigue, that you might overmatch our resistant ears with your transformative speech, that your grace would break into those pockets in our life where we need to hear from you. God, come, we pray, by your spirit, we ask, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So a few years back, uh, Philip Yancey wrote a book entitled, What's So Amazing About Grace? And some of you have read this book. But in in the opening chapter, he tells a story about a man who works with the down and out, and the man describes encountering a woman downtown in desperate straits. And he said she was homeless and sick, and she was unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter, and she had resorted to all kinds of just terrible stuff in order to support her own drug habit. And the man said that after hearing her story and not really knowing what else to say, he turned and asked her if she had ever thought about trying out church. And she writes, quote, or he writes, quote, I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Philip Yancey says, what struck me about this story, quote, is that women like this fled towards Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she was to find Jesus as a refuge. And then he wonders, has the church lost this gift? Now, it is interesting, isn't it, that when you look at the stories of Jesus, that it was often the people who were least like Jesus who liked Jesus and who actually felt liked by Jesus. And, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of... um, uh, of a quote by a Salvadorian priest, Oscar Romero, in a little book called The Scandal of Redemption that I read this last year, he put it like this. He said, in Christ is found a zone where those who are most needy and hopeless, the sinful people, the benighted societies can glimpse the hope offered by a God who still loves us. When I first read that quote, I thought, what, is, uh, what does it mean to be benighted anyway? You see that word, benighted societies? And uh, I looked it up online actually yesterday. And incidentally, uh, in addition to being a French death, grand bi- death grind band, uh, it also means, quote, to be in a state of pitiful or contemptible intellectual or moral ignorance, typically owing to a lack of opportunity. And do you hear what Dr. Or, uh, the priest Romero is saying? He's saying, in Christ is found the zone where people who are in the worst kind of straits discern that they are loved by God. Now, just think about that. You think, I heard that word zone, and what came to my mind was end zone, you know, like in football, you know, and when, I'm not like a big sports guy, but I know at least this, if you get the, if you get the ball into the end zone, that's good, right? You don't have to know much. And you feel a sense of release and freedom because finally you got it where it needed to go and you were feeling nervous and was I going to drop it or was I going to catch it or was I going to get there? And you got there and there's this freedom and this release and this dance. You know, they always do a little end zone dance, right? And what Romero is saying is that in Jesus, it's like those who are 
the least, those who, who, have, who have been on the very fringes and margins, those who are broken and found themselves discouraged by the state their own lives are in, they get into Jesus and they've reached a zone where they discern that they are loved by God. There is still hope offered by a God who still loves us. In other words, you don't walk into a place that exudes this kind of love and leave feeling worse off about yourself than you did before you walked in. But again, it is a problem, is it, in our churches that oftentimes we can find ourselves feeling worse about ourselves after going to church than we did before we came. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. I, I think at least one of the reasons is that church people, we, we church people can sometimes be like an Instagram post. And what do you do? You try to carefully curate that photo to make it look like your relationship or your vacation or your family is perfect. And you kind of like, you self-present and you hide the real stuff that people rarely, you know, present on Facebook their worst selves. Rather, they have a very carefully curated self. And we can sometimes do that in church, right? We can present to people the best part of ourselves and we can hide the train wreck that's going on underneath the surface. And I can just tell you as a pastor who has met with uh, many people throughout the week, you know, throughout, throughout the, the many years I've been doing this, there is so much stuff going on beneath the surface of so many of our lives, my life included. And we always stand ever as people in need of grace. We need to be those people who, who live in the zone where we discern that there is hope, that there is a God who still loves us. Amen? And this morning, what I want to do is I want to invite you into a little story. You know, we've been in uh, a series called A Year with Jesus. It's just a short little series we're going to be in all year. And, uh, but we're spending a year with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark so that we might cultivate a deeper life with Jesus. And today, as we continue on in our year with Jesus, we are going to uh, enter into the zone with Jesus where he is gathering together with sinners, those who are on the outcasts and the margins, and they there are finding hope that there is a God who still loves them. And I want to invite you to enter into this story. It begins in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and it says this. And he went out again beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus is doing the majority of his work. And all the crowd was coming to him at this point in the ministry of Jesus. It is marked by growing popularity. He has been healing the sick and casting out demons with unparalleled power. He has been teaching with unsurpassed wisdom. And the crowds love it. And everywhere, they, wherever Jesus goes, crowds are following him. And you just imagine the, these little bustling seaside villages and, and hordes of people coming around Jesus. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, as these crowds are following him, he's got this movement of disciples that are forming around him. It looks like everything is going great. But then this, uh, as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So, so, so at this point, again, growing popularity, who has Jesus already called? A couple of fishermen, uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John. They were probably fairly 
upright young men who perhaps had been even disciples of John the Baptist. They kept their nose clean. They had probably observed Torah. And, and now the Jewish Messiah comes and they're like, we are devoting ourselves to him. They're following him around and they're watching what he's doing. And he's getting, they're like, this is it. But then all of a sudden, Jesus does something that must have been shocking to them. He calls as his next recruit a tax gatherer. Now, who are the tax gatherers? Uh, some of you will know this. The tax gatherers were essentially traders in Israel. Uh, they oftentimes were engaged in fraudulent behavior. Uh, they were authorized by, in this case, Herod Antipas. These would have been tax gatherers of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had gotten his position from the Roman Empire, and some of that tax revenue went to fund the Roman Empire that was oppressing the people. And what would happen is, is there would be these chief tax collectors who would bid for the right to gather taxes in a particular area. And so they might give, let's just say, um, I'm just making this up, 30,000 shekels to uh, Herod Antipas in order to have the right to tax the people. And then they would hire this little group of tax gatherers who then go and gather that 30,000 shekels back. But then they would also tack on a whole lot extra to pad their own pockets. And so tax gatherers were very, very rich. They were exploitive. Uh, they were like the Bernie Madoffs of their day. Nobody liked them. Nobody liked them. And uh, to, to top all that off, they were helping fund the very colonial power that was oppressing them. And so the fellow Jews were like, look, it's us versus Rome. And because it's us Jews against Rome, and we are on God's side, and Rome is God's enemy who's oppressing God's people, then anybody who was in, in collusion with the Roman Empire was an enemy of God. They were a traitor. And so they lived on the margins. Now, I don't imagine that tax gatherers got into the business because they wanted people to despise them. You know, everybody likes to be liked and respected. Uh, everybody likes it, you know, where, wherever you go, they know your name and they're always glad you came and so on and so forth. People like that. But they probably got into it maybe because of the money, and they thought, oh, I can, here's a lucrative career. But then maybe he got there and, and it wasn't turning out the way he was hoping it would be. And maybe Levi, uh, another gospel, Matthew's gospel tells us his name is Matthew as well. He's got two names. They did that in the ancient world. Some of them had two names. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, Levi, he's watching Jesus off in the distance and he's like, man, look at him. And then Jesus is walking closer and closer, and he's like, he's coming to me. And he said, what's he going to do? Nobody likes me. Why is he coming to me? And Jesus says, follow me. And at this point, the only people who are more shocked by the call of Levi than the uh, disciples who were like, what are you, what are you, you're going to make our team look bad, Jesus. What are you choosing him for? The only one more shocked than the disciples is Levi himself. He's like, me? Are you talking to me? And Levi gets up and he is so thrilled that he throws a party and he invites all of his friends. And who are all of his friends? They were all the people that were also despised and looked down upon all of the sinners. And look what it says. And he reclined at table in his house and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. Now, the Pharisees saw this 
And, and they saw this. They were on the outside looking in because nobody invited the Pharisees to the party, but they saw what was going on in the party. They didn't want to be at the party anyway. They wouldn't have gone even if they were invited. But uh, they, they see the disciples and Jesus partying it up with all these tax gatherers and sinners in this house. And they, they call one of uh, Jesus' disciples outside. Like, hey, come here, come here. Like, go, go find out. And, and they, they, they say, go, go, go. It says, when the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, go find out, why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Go inside and ask your teacher, what does he think he's doing? You know, he's a rabbi. He's uh, doing all this great teaching. If he's a rabbi doing this teaching, then you know who she should be eating with? It's not them, it's with us. There's us and them, and we are not them. They are not us. He should be with us. What's he doing with them? And so they go out and they ask the question, like, what are you thinking eating with these people? Now, to understand and to kind of wrap your mind around why this was such a concern to the Pharisees that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, you have to know a little bit about meals in the first century. And what you need to know about meals in the first century is that meals in the first century were about so much more than just food. They were about so much more than food. So what were they about? Well, first, Meals in the first century in the ancient world was about social bonding. All that dipping your bread in the same bowl as these other people and sharing the same wine and, 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 and you sat very close and in intimate quarters with people. And, um, and meals in the ancient world were symbolic of friendship and intimacy and closeness. If you ate with somebody, you know what you'd be saying? You'd be saying, look, I have your back from now on and you have mine. If you ate with them, you'd be saying, look, you are family. You are with me. We have bonded together because we have eaten a meal. In fact, if there had been some falling out, one of the ways in which you would move toward reconciliation is you would share a meal together. So meals in the first century were about social bonding. But secondly, meals in the first century were also about social boundaries. Who you ate with and who you didn't eat with would say who you believed was in and out. And you remember back in the quad in elementary school or junior high school, anybody? There were these little cliques, and there were some groups that you could be in with and some which you'd be out with. And maybe it was the shoes you wore, or the outfit you had, or how good you were at sports, or how good looking you were, or whatever it was that allowed you to get in. And then there were the people that were on the outs. And meals in the first century was a way in which you would communicate. You would sign to everyone who you believed was in and out with God. And the people that were in with God, you could eat with, but the people that were out with God, you would avoid because you might get cooties, you might get whatever they have, and so you wouldn't eat with them. And so meals were about social bonding, but they were also about social boundaries. And listen, for Jesus at least, meals were about a third thing. Meals were also a foretaste of the kingdom feast. Now, I love this. You know, um, in the ancient prophets, when they envisioned the long-awaited in-breaking kingdom of God, you know one of the most frequent metaphors they would use to draw on to describe what God was gonna do in the world? They would describe it as a great feast. In fact, there's this great passage in Isaiah 25 where it says, the Lord of hosts, God has created this banquet 
full of rich food and uh, well-aged wines and of great meat. And he's inviting everybody to come. And they said, this is the kingdom. You want to know what the long-awaited kingdom of God is like? don't, Don't think sitting on clouds playing harps. Who wants to do that? Think of a great feast, a huge barbecue with the best wine and the best, all the people, the music's pumping, and it's a feast. And uh, what Jesus is doing in his feast, in fact, look back at the test. I want you to notice, it says, it describes it as uh, Jesus reclining. He reclined at table. Sinners were reclining with Jesus. You see that word, reclined? The East Asian New Testament scholar, Kim Huat Ten, points out that this is actually a technical phrase, this word reclining, and it refers to a first century kind of feast or celebratory party. And you see what Jesus was doing when he would gather together with sinners and outcasts and all this stuff, and he'd eat these great feasts, was he was giving us a little foretaste of the long-awaited kingdom feast to come He was saying, in essence, that my kingdom has broken in here and now, and in these feasts, the the long-awaited kingdom feast has begun. It's kind of like a Costco free sample. You know, when you're wandering around Costco in the afternoon and you're hungry and you walk over to the table, you get that little plastic cup full of uh, lasagna, you eat that little taste of that thing. It's just a little foretaste of what's to come when you buy all 10 pounds of that lasagna. (laughs) The meals of Jesus were a foretaste of what is to come. And so do you see why the religious leaders are getting so ticked off and are so disturbed and bothered by the meals of Jesus? What is he saying? Jesus, who are you bonding with? You are connecting with? You're bonding with them? What are people gonna think? They're going to think you affirm their lifestyle if you spend that kind of time with them and you laugh with them and you break bread with them. They're going to think you're tearing down all the old boundaries. They're going to think that these people are are invited to the kingdom banquet. And they're upset and they're troubled by what Jesus is doing right in front of them. And notice Jesus' response to their alarm. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, look, I know how you're interpreting things. I know how you're interpreting this. You're interpreting this as uh, I'm breaking all the religious boundaries and I'm affirming their lifestyle and oh no. Uh, But he says, I don't interpret it like that at all. Instead, he says, here's what you need to know from my, here's what I'm doing. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, listen, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, upon hearing this, he says, look, um, it's funny. They're like, what are you doing eating with these tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus doesn't say to them, shh, shh, you know, don't, you know, don't call Levi and his friends sinners. <laughs> that may hurt their feelings. He may raise your taxes, you know? No, on hearing this, he says, no, I have come like a great physician to heal sick sinners. That's why I'm here eating with them. Those who are righteous have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, uh, we're like, well, wait, weren't the Pharisees sick too? Does that mean that they weren't sick? You know, weren't they just uh, infected? Weren't they infected as well? The um, theologian Stanley Harawas puts it like this. I love this. He says, the Pharisees have no need of this physician 
because their illness is to believe that they are well. Their illness is to believe that they are well. Jesus has come to rescue sinners. The kingdom he has brought is constituted by those who are able to acknowledge their sins. Or in the words of the brilliant writer, Bell Hooks, in her book, All About Love, she says this, true love does have the power to redeem, but only if we are ready for redemption. Love saves only if we want to be saved. And the Pharisees were not ready for redemption. They were not wanting to be saved because in their imagination, they were not sick. They were inflicted with the disease of thinking they were well. Of course, they're not the first or the last people to imagine themselves well when everyone around them can see some sickness. Well, at this point, the conversation shifts. You know, at first, you know, the the Pharisees are wondering, why are you partying with sinners? But then they're like, well, why are you partying at all? You know, why are you feasting at all? Look at John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They aren't feasting, they're fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Listen, fasting, what was it about? Fasting was about lamenting the state of the present. Uh, And in the ancient first century context, the Pharisees would fast twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, saying that things are not right. The Roman Empire is colonizing us. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So they fasted to lament the present situation. Things are not well. And it's the sign that you are longing for a better day. Jesus in our text doesn't say that fasting is bad and that celebration is good. No, what he's saying is that the Pharisees' timing is all messed up. Notice what he says. He said to them, look, um, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Listen, there is a time to fast, but now is not such a time. The long-awaited kingdom has broken in, says Jesus, in me. The kingdom of God is at hand. The bridegroom is here, and as long as they have the bridegroom with them, you cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, Jesus is is alerting them. They are not perceiving the very presence of God and of his kingdom right in their midst. And he goes on, and he gives another metaphor. He says this, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, the two metaphors that he's giving here is uh, illustrating the incompatibility of the Pharisees' old mindset toward Jesus and the new thing Jesus is doing And he uses this illustration of uh, cloth and wineskins to make his point. Now, the first one is pretty straightforward. If you sew a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment that's already gone through the wash multiple times, you know, and then you put it in the wash, the unshrunk cloth is going to shrink and make the tear worse. Is that straightforward? But the second one, wineskins, we don't use wineskins. Most of us have bottles. (laughs) It's a little trickier. But... um, Listen, uh, what they would do is they would put new wine into fresh wineskins, and 
as the wine would ferment, gases would be released, and the new wine skins would expand with the new wine. But if you put new wine into old wine skins that were brittle and about ready to break and it expanded, the whole thing would break, and you'd ruin both the wine skin and the wine. And Jesus says, uh, his point's clear. He's saying, look, my new thing, my new wine of the kingdom, this new celebratory feast that's breaking in, that's welcoming sinners, it is incompatible with the old way of being marked out by the Pharisees. Cannot coexist. And our text ends. Now, what I want to do now is I want to just pull back and I want to... Have us observe what's at the heart of this passage, the main claim that I think this passage is making. And I think it's simply this, that the new kingdom of Jesus, I mean, what is it that we get a window into when you see Jesus sitting down at a table and leaning in, reclining together with all these riffraff, what are we seeing? What we're seeing is simply this, that the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of radical, undeserved grace for sinners. Like, well, what is grace anyway? Uh, the technical version you could say is God's unmerited favor toward the infinitely ill-deserving. Or uh, you could say grace is God's smile that brings us back to ourself and makes us smile. You could say grace is that voice that speaks and embodies the unconditional welcome and love of God that says you are loved, unconditionally loved, and gives space for people to live into and inhabit that truth. Grace is the love that dismantles the old messages of shame and disgrace till the soul feels its worth. Grace, in the words of uh, you two, yeah, she carries a pearl in perfect condition. Once what, 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 what once was hurt, what once was friction, once what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace finds beauty in everything. Grace finds goodness in everything. Grace is where the Christian life begins. Grace is what the kingdom of God is all about. The Apostle Paul said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And so the claim of our text, when we're looking at the meals of Jesus, what we are seeing, when you see Jesus bonding and breaking down the boundaries, and inaugurating this kingdom feast, and inviting all kinds of people to his table for fellowship and relationship, what we're seeing is a kingdom of radical, unconditional grace. But I want to suggest that we see a few things about this kingdom of grace that's breaking in in Jesus. First, the radical grace of God is something that becomes tangible at the table of Jesus. You know, God's grace can feel sometimes when we're sitting in a context like this, like a vague general idea. But in the ministry of Jesus, the word becomes flesh and breaks bread with broken, fallen people. It becomes tangible and concrete. Zacchaeus, uh, Levi, they didn't just hear stories about grace. They had an encounter, a personal encounter with the grace of God. And, 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 
and, and they were transformed. And they were shown that they mattered, that they were loved because Jesus saw them and welcomed them to a table and said, come and break bread with me. God's grace is made tangible at the table of Jesus. The brilliant and insightful theologian, Alicia Swanson, that's my wife, put it like this when we were, putting, when we were talking last night. She said, quote, our bodies sense things before we put words to it. You can be a healing presence to people without saying a word, and you can say all the right words and not be a healing presence to people. Isn't that true? And here Jesus is a healing presence by simply what he is doing. And what is he doing? He's saying, come. He's saying, come and, 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 and sit with me. And let my hands touch the untouchable lepers. And let my words of restoration and healing be spoken over your life and come and sit in an open home with a large table with lamb and falafel and bread and wine and music and friends and comfortable seats and laughter and joy. And when he leaned against you and when he looked into your eyes and when he dipped his bread into the same bowl as you dipped your bread and you thought, I am, I'm being welcomed. He's welcoming in me into a relationship. This is not a vague, general concept. The word became flesh and ate a meal among us. So number one, the radical grace of God becomes tangible at the table of Jesus. Number two, the radical grace of God. In our story, it makes religious people nervous. Now, let's just press that a little bit further. Let's just... The radical grace of God can make a lot of us nervous. Not, not when it's directed at you. I mean, you want grace, right? I mean, when, you are, when you've been caught red-handed and the boss calls you in or uh, you get home and your, your parents were there awake and they saw it and they, you're like, you're just, what you want in that moment more than anything for yourself is grace. We love grace for ourselves. The tricky thing is when that grace is extended to people who've hurt us or have hurt people close to us, or people we just don't like, or we think are on the outs. We don't want to show grace to those people. And so grace makes religious people nervous. And it makes us understandably nervous because we wonder, like, is Jesus just accepting them as they are? And does that mean he accepts their lifestyle choices? I mean, these were task gatherers. They were cheating people out of money. They were taking advantage of the poor. Is Jesus just affirming those choices? No, of course not. Listen to what Miroslav Vol says. He says this, to be clear, Jesus doesn't reject the Pharisees' estimation of Levi and his tax-collecting friends as sinners. He is not advocating that the upright religious people chill out no, extracting taxes from the rural poor who could barely afford to live as it was is no small matter. Nor is betraying the people of God or participating in the empire of Caesar. Jesus' intimacy with Levi and his elk does not amount to an endorsement of their way of life. On the contrary, Jesus draws near on account of this. On account of, it was because they were in their straits that Jesus drew near him. In other words, grace precedes human change. Grace always precedes human change. 
And if what we get in our heads is that people need to straighten up their lives first before they experience the welcome and generosity of God, you have gotten the whole thing backwards. Paul says in 1 Timothy, God poured out his grace in Christ Jesus before creation began. Before you sinned, after you sinned, after you ran from God, God's grace was there before it was in the middle and it will be there all the way to the end. Grace has always been what it's been about in the beginning and in the middle and in the end. It is all grace. But listen, grace is not opposed to calls to repentance or warnings about where this thing is gonna take you. It's not opposed to the training and pursuit of becoming a person of love Notice the first words Jesus speaks to Levi are what? Follow me. Come learn a different way of being in the world. Listen, grace often expresses itself in truth. It's been said that clarity is kindness. And of course, sometimes, and you know this to be the case, a gentle warning, sometimes a harsh rebuke, sometimes intervention is kindness, isn't it? Grace is not opposed to any of that. You know, the statement, unless you repent, you too will perish, originated not from a preacher with a bullhorn, but from the lips of Jesus, the preacher of grace. I think maybe that's what Flannery O'Connor meant when she said this. She said, look, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful. And look, sometimes it's just an objective fact. And everyone around you knows that, that unless you change the way you're treating the people in your life or managing your medications or talking to yourself with all that self-hatred, unless you work on yourself, that thing is going to destroy your life. You're on a raft and there's a waterfall ahead and everybody sees it and you know it. And oftentimes the most gracious and kind and loving thing you can do is warn a person. Grace is not opposed to calls to repentance or any of that thing. But listen, here's the thing, and it is the key thing. Everything Jesus said and did, his calls to repentance, his warnings, his teachings, it all came in a context of radical, unconditional love. That was the soil out of which all of this call came, and that was the soil, it was always ever gonna be the soil out of which genuine change would ever come. The soil of radical, unmerited, unconditional grace. And listen, I I, I just wanna press on something. This is often the context that Jesus comes with his calls for change. This is not often the context that we create when we invite people or wanna see people change. You know, I think one of the most abused statements in the history of the world is this. I'm just saying this because I love you. Well, it may be true that you love them, but often that's not why you have reacted the way you have. The reason why you're reacting and why you're saying those things and why you're treating them, why you want to exclude them, why you're, is because you're afraid of what people might think or uh, you have an image to protect and maintain, or you only feel safe when you're in control and this person, uh, an adult son or daughter, is no longer in your control anymore, and out of desperation, you start going after them, and you wanna coerce them and get them to do what you want them to do, and everybody knows the most effective tool to try to get people to do what you want them to do is you shame them, 
and you guilt them and you uh, use God and religion to coerce them. And listen, that is just not what Jesus did. Jesus welcomed people before they changed to his table and said, you are loved and you are cared for and you matter and I love you and you, you have a place at this table. And he, he created people, he gave people space to enter into a process where they began to change over the long course of their life. Do you think Matthew and Peter and John and all those people changed overnight? Of course they didn't. Do you think all of the issues that they had needed to dealt with were dealt with right off the bat? No, of course they weren't. It took time. Listen, maybe, just maybe, what your roommate or your parents or your adult children or your spouse needs to hear most from you are not warnings of judgment or manipulative religious talk about how they're in the grip of the evil one and so on and so forth. Maybe the words that they need to hear most from you are, I'm sorry for how I've treated you. I repent, not you need to repent. Maybe that needs to be the beginning posture of our hearts if we're gonna to begin to create a culture of grace. Third observation, the radical grace of God becomes tangible at the table of Jesus. It makes religious people nervous. But thirdly and finally, the radical and unconditional grace of God is for you. It is for you. You know, as you think about this story, where do you find yourself? Which character do you most relate to? I was talking again to Alicia, my wife, this week, and um, I was telling her what I wanted to talk about in this sermon. She's like, so it sounds like you are the, you're the Jesus figure in this narrative. It's like, easy. <laughs> Maybe you ought to find yourself in a different character. Maybe the character we need to most identify with if we're ever gonna grow out of our pharisaical, harsh, critical, judgy attitudes towards people, maybe the character we need to first find ourselves identifying with is Levi. The one who, who was, who, who, before he even came to a recognition, before he even began the process of repentance, discovered that he was an object of the unconditional love of God. That God's grace that breaks bread and opens tables and says, come and lean in, was for him and it's for you and it's for me. And we need it because we're a mess. And even if you didn't mess up your life through doing all the bad stuff, you know, all the stuff that the younger brother did when he ran off and lost all of his money and loose living. Maybe, maybe your lostness is like the lostness of the Pharisees who had that under the surface growing, you know, malignant tumor inside, but nobody saw it. They only saw their pretty outside. And yet there was something inside that was corrosive to their soul, their own self-righteousness that was making them an angry and fearful person. Wherever you're at, whether you are like Levi or like the Pharisees, all of us collectively have a shared sickness and all of us have been objects of the love and grace of God that became tangible in Jesus, who became flesh and ate a meal among us and ultimately had his life 
taken and his body stripped and beaten and hung up crucified on a cross to bear in his body our own sin and shame and sickness and darkness so that by his stripes, we might be made whole. And may you hear afresh today the gracious, generous welcome of Jesus. Follow me. I want you. Come eat with me. And may you find that to be such good news that you open up your own home and you invite friends and neighbors in and you let them feel and experience at your table the grace and love of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now. We confess that there is sickness in this place, that all of the beauty and the goodness that we have been made for, the truth that we are worthy of dignity and respect because we have been made in your image. God, we've become sick. Sick because of what we've done, sick because of what we've done, what's been done to us. And we need the healing of your great physician. Lord Jesus, would you meet us afresh and would we find fresh healing in you even today? And it's in your name that we ask these things. Amen.